0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, our reading for this evening will be verses 10 through 20, but the text that we will be considering in the sermon this evening will just be verses 10 through 13. and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. What would it be like to go out to your mailbox one day and to find that you had a letter from one of the branches of the U.S. military? Well, if you were a, a young person, particularly a young man, and you had registered for the draft, you might have a sinking feeling in your stomach knowing what the contents of that envelope contained, a statement that your name had been chosen from the lottery and that you were called to bear arms for your country. What might await you would be months, perhaps years, of discomfort, pain, and toil, struggling for the advancement of the cause of the nation, and perhaps it might even mean that you would have to lay down your life for your country. In our text this evening, we find that the church has been enlisted, and this is not like, not quite like the, uh, the enlistment in uh, the United States military or any of its branches, but this is an enlistment within the kingdom of God to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And enlistment in this conflict is not optional. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are engaged in a warfare. And so you need to prepare and be equipped for that warfare. And because you are at war with heavenly powers, you must be strong in the Lord we'll be considering this evening uh, most especially the uh, that the conflict and the ones with whom we are conflicting spending a lot of time in verse 12 but in light of that reality that we are engaged in a struggle that we are engaged in a warfare we must also heed the command which we will Lord willing develop in, uh, in a coming week that we are called to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So as we consider this idea that the church is engaged in a warfare with powers and principalities in heavenly places, we'll consider it under several points. First, the reality and nature of our conflict as the church. The reality and nature of Of our conflict. First, notice that there is a real conflict. There is a real war that is taking place against uh, demonic powers. Verse 12 For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And just before that, at the end of verse 11, a warning about the schemes of the devil. And later in the text also, the church is called to take up the shield of faith so that it can extinguish the flaming arrows that are shot at it by the evil one. So there is a real conflict with heavenly, angelic, demonic powers with which you are presently engaged. We need to recognize the existence of such an enemy. If you were to go to war, or if you were rather uh, attacked by a foreign country, uh, coming back down to the, the earthly geopolitical realm, if you were attacked by another country and your country refused to acknowledge that it was at war, it would not have great success. If the United States were engaged in some military conflict with another country but refused to acknowledge that the other country was attacking us, it would not go well for the United States. And so in the church, if the church does not recognize that there is a real conflict playing out in the heavenly sphere, we will not be equipped and able to engage it if we are in denial about its very existence. And so as we think about these dark powers with which we are in conflict, there are two errors, at least, that we need to be cautious of. There is the one error of being totally materialistic and denying the existence of such powers. This is, uh, at least more widely in our culture, the error that we are prone to fall into. Talking about Angels and demons, and the existence of spiritual powers. Isn't that just uh, uh, a lazy way of explaining things before the time of scientific inquiry? You don't know how something works, and so you just chalk it up to some demonic power that that made this happen. But really, now that we've come through the Enlightenment, now that we have the scientific method, we really know that there is a physical explanation and cause for all of these things. Haven't we outgrown the need? to to talk about demons, can't we explain everything just through material cause and effect? That is one danger. And while, as Christians, we may be ready to acknowledge the existence of demons, we should also ask the questions, practically speaking, do we live as though we denied their existence? Do we live as though we denied the existence of hostile spiritual powers in the heavenly places? Do we pray like we actually believe that there is a warfare going on? Do we exercise church discipline like we actually believe that Satan is assaulting the church and looking for a weak point to enter it and to cause division? Do we use discretion in what we allow on our screens, like we actually believe that demons are seeking to entice us and lead us astray in the lusts of our flesh? The other error is to have uh, an over-interest in such powers, to say that, yes, they do exist, and they're behind everything that I see. That headache I have—it's because there is a demon attacking me. The red light that I got when I was already late for work—that was because of a demon. To to chalk up to demonic influence uh, things that are not directly caused by them. An unhealthy interest in the demonic and a a an overconfidence in how we deal with them as though we could simply give an incantation or a rebuke and that this would solve the problem. So if it's neither of these two extremes, how should we think about the existence, the reality of these hostile forces? Scripture itself gives us information about uh, the way that these hostile powers uh, work in the things, the sorts of things that they do. uh, Two characteristics that we can point out, two ways that they work is, one, they lead people into false belief and two, they entice people into unholy living. They lead people into false belief. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So false teachings, but false teachings which Paul describes as doctrines of demons. That where there is false teaching, it, it may be brought about by a demonic influence. That the false teaching that would seek to infiltrate the church is not just uh, you know, a simple misunderstanding of, of a particular text, but that there are powers behind deception seeking to lead the church astray. They also seek to lead people into unholy practices. We find this in Ephesians itself, describing the work of the Prince of the Power of the Air. If you flip back to chapter 2, Paul describes the condition of the church uh, in Ephesus. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the Prince of the Power of the Air, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And so there is the prince of the power of the air who exerts an influence of some sort over the sons of disobedience, leading them in in the blindness of their mind, having blinded their, their reasoning capacities so that they pursue the appetites of the flesh and engage in unholy desires and passions. So first, simply note that the conflict is real. That there are entities above what we can observe with our eyes or hear with our ears that are hostile to the church. Furthermore, as we think about the nature of this conflict, note that the enemy is crafty. Chapter 6, verse 11 Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That when Satan seeks to undo the church, when he seeks to do harm to the church, that it's often very subtle and crafty. It's not obvious the way that he's going about it. When Eve was deceived in the garden, it was through a a crafty deceit that she was deceived. so, uh, in our own time, we have to be careful to recognize that there are all kinds of crafty ways that the enemy may seek to undo the church, and it might not be obvious. As we read the scriptures, we find accounts of those who are oppressed by demons, and we can look at that and we can say, oh, that's, that's quite clearly an instance where there is demonic activity that is hostile to this person and destroying the life of this person. But consider also that there are more subtle ways through false teaching that sounds pretty right for the most part, but which has with it uh, an error that comes along with it. Or consider again uh, that passage from Timothy in which one of the doctrines of demons that Paul puts forth as an example is those who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from which God has created to be gratefully shared in. We could look at somebody like that and say, wow, look at how holy that person is. Look at the self-discipline that is. Look how ascetic they can be. Look at how holy they are for God because they abstain from these things and require other people to abstain from these things. and that this is a doctrine of demons. We can see the, the danger of such teaching, subtle, but it's dangerous in at least two ways. It can lead to more immorality if, if those who are called to marry are, are not allowed to, and they engage in sexual immorality. But also notice that it's dangerous because it takes away the thanksgiving that we should be giving to God for his good gifts. That the teaching robs God of the worship that is owed to him by saying, You can't touch that, you can't have that, when really God has created this to be received with thanksgiving so that we would worship him. It's a subtle deceit. And we need to be on guard against such craftiness. Third characteristic of the nature of this conflict is that we are at war with dark powers. One writer says this, Bear in mind that they, these, these spiritual powers, have no moral principles, no code of honor, no higher feelings. They recognize no Geneva Convention to restrict or partially civilize the weapons of their warfare. They are utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in the pursuit Of their malicious designs. We could qualify that a little bit by recognizing that even these hostile heavenly powers are themselves subject to God. They are not omnipotent, that even the adversary must ask permission of God before he can afflict Job. But even as they are subject to God, they are given a great deal of liberty, and they are feisty ferocious, hostile, and will not uh, play fair, so to speak. All of this may be disheartening. We're engaged in warfare with powers that are superhuman, that we can't see, that don't need rest like we do that are able to uh, operate invisibly and and secretly, how how disheartening this might be to consider that we are engaged in a warfare like that. But consider that as we get to Ephesians chapter 6, this is not the first time that we encounter these hostile powers. In fact, there is the whole context of the first five chapters to encourage us and animate us in this conflict. Consider being dropped into a war zone and told that the enemy is all around you, that they have great power, and that you are a mere human. This would be a disheartening situation uh, to be in. But consider if you were dropped into a war zone and told that uh, you were part of a larger effort, a larger military effort that has been driving back the enemy by hundreds of miles each day, that over you there is uh, air support of every sort, and that the captain for whom you fight literally has the power to raise you from the dead should you be killed in action. That changes your perspective on this conflict and in this warfare. And and that's what we have in the early part of Ephesians. We have context. This is our second point, the context of our conflict. Now, the context of our conflict is that we are extending the, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Flip back with me, if you would, to chapter 1. Paul prays for the Ephesians in chapter 1, asking uh, God that uh, the Ephesians Ephesians may know, in verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead by, by God. The, 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 the spirit that has raised Jesus from the dead has uh, enabled Jesus to triumph over all of his enemies. Jesus is now seated and enthroned in the heavenly places above all authority over all powers, uh, including these hostile powers, which we see again in chapter 6. And that same power is now at work in the church. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that we will read in chapter 2 is the the same power that makes us who were dead in our trespasses and sins alive in Jesus Christ. The same power which enthroned Jesus in the heavenly places is the same power which we will read in chapter 2 which has seated us in the heavenly places as well. So we have been raised and seated with Christ. In the heavenly places, and now as we continue through Ephesians into chapter three, verse ten, we are reminded that the, uh, <clears throat> God has uh, brought about in the the gospel age uh, the purpose of making known uh, through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places His manifold wisdom. That it's the purpose of God through the church to show to these heavenly powers His manifold wisdom enlisting the church as the one through whom he's going to make this known. And so then when we finally do get to chapter 6 and we read about this conflict, we're not reading about a a church that is being uh, besieged and and is the, the last holdout in this great war, but rather this is a church that belongs to Jesus Christ, that is itself in the heavenly places that has been raised up with the heavenly places and is now being used by God to conflict and drive back these heavenly powers. Consider how encouraging this is. If it were up to us to engage in this conflict, we would be totally at a loss to do it. But because we have Jesus who has been exalted, Jesus himself is the supreme power in the universe over all of these demonic powers. And we are his body, and he is at work through the church to continue that conflict. In chapter 2, it's the prince of the power of the air who exercises a power over... Uh, the sons of disobedience, leading them astray, blinding their minds, and, and Jesus rescues uh, the Ephesians who were once those uh, among those sons of disobedience, and, and seats them with Him. And now the church too has a role to play. The church too is enlisted in that effort against these heavenly forces that lead the nations astray. How amazing of a calling that is for the church! that we are called to uh, push back that power which heavenly uh, authorities exercise over over the nations in destroying them. So as we consider that we are engaged in this conflict, we should not grow discouraged, but we should be encouraged, knowing that Jesus Christ, our captain, has all authority over the very powers against which we war now third and finally consider the equipment that we have for the conflict because we do not war against flesh and blood because we are engaged in a conflict with heavenly powers it calls for heavenly weapons weapons of flesh are not going to be successful in countering the uh, the enemy in this situation. And there is, in our time, a, a great, um, I think, effort by, by many Christians to use fleshly weapons and fleshly warfare to try to gain advances for the kingdom of God. Now, it very well may be the case that each of us in our respective vocations are called to do certain things which are an advancement of, of uh, righteousness in as much as we have influence in the spheres that God has given to us. But we need to recognize that the conflict is much greater than uh, than what we see with our eyes. The conflict is much greater than merely money or propaganda would lead you to believe. The conflict in the enemy is, is not... Uh, simply these, these powerful institutions at work in the, to change and shape the culture. that Even if there are institutions that are built as alternatives, there is still an energizing demonic power at work behind them and that it's those powers that we need to conflict with. And so it calls for heavenly armor, Verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then after our text, beginning in verse 14, Paul will enumerate various pieces of armor that we are called to put on. But simply note for this evening the origin of this armor. Put on the full armor of God. This is an armor that comes from our God and not from ourselves. This is not a self-reliant thing that we are able to accomplish. We are called to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We're not called to be strong in our own strength. And If we were called to be strong in our own strength, it would be so disastrous. Imagine if it all hung on your own flesh weapons and on your own strength if the advancement of the kingdom of god depended either on your own uh, military prowess or if it depended on the success of uh, that christian business that you were trying to start or if it depended on the success of your new christian social media platform and then to watch all of that all of those efforts fail How disheartening that would be, to be strong in your own strength. But we're called to be strong in the strength of the Lord and to put on the armor of God, to be strong in what Christ has done for us, to recognize that he has won the victory at the cross, that he has been raised from the dead, that he gives us his spirit and enables us to put to death unrighteous deeds in our lives, that he is the one who enables us to resist These powers. If that weren't the case, we would be so lost, so hopeless in the struggle. But because the strength and the armor which we have is not our own, that comes to us from God and from our Savior Jesus Christ, we may be encouraged and heartened in this conflict, and we may put on that armor, and we may be renewed in the vigor of His strength. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we do thank you for the victory that is ours through your son Jesus Christ, that he has triumphed over all the hosts of heaven and that we in him have triumphed as well. We pray that you would equip us this week for for that conflict, that when we are tempted to rely on our own strength, that we would not do so, but that we would turn again to Jesus Christ our Savior and be strong in the might that he provides us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.